Welcome back to the Cool Stuff Ride Home podcast. Marcus Papp here alongside Reggie Rizzo. On today's episode, autonomous driving cars may be closer than we think. Plus, the Sunshine State embraces one of its most common stereotypes. Also, 89 years ago this week, one of the world's greatest monsters debuted. Plus, is social media really addicting? And the major city that changed locations three times. All that and the anniversary of the first show for one of the world's greatest bands. This is the Cool Stuff Ride Home. Coming this spring, BMW is looking to launch a near-autonomous car. The BMW is planning on launching the Level 3 automated driving for its BMW 7 Series cars in March of 2024. Pre-orders for the Level 3 system will start in December. BMW's Level 3 system, named the Personal Pilot L3, will be available for a $6,410 upgrade for the BMW 7 Series cars. It will exclude specific models, especially in Germany. The L3 refers to the SAE standard for automated driving that allows the car to drive itself under certain conditions with the driver ready to take over the wheel if needed. Uh, The Mercedes-Benz already offers level three automation in limited scenarios. For this, BMW claims to be the first car maker offering both the level two automation in the BMW 5 series models and level three automation simultaneously. Now, if you're curious about what this means, if you have the level three automation, well, it works at speeds up to 37 miles per hour on highways with structurally separated roadways. It's going to allow the drivers to perform non-driving tasks. You know, if you're looking at your emails, taking a phone call, putting on makeup, whatever it might be, as long as you're ready to take control if needed. So no sleeping at the wheel. Unlike level four or level five automation, level three may require the driver to take over. So again, no falling asleep at the wheel. You got to be ready to take over. BMW's level three system uses 5G connectivity, precise GPS positioning, cameras, ultrasonic sensors, radars, and a 3D LiDAR sensor. If you're curious what that means, a LiDAR is a light detection and ranging. That's what it stands for. It's a remote sensing method that uses light in the form of pulse laser to measure ranges to the earth, so variable distances. The level three system is considered suitable for slow moving traffic or tailbacks during commutes. So It's not really, I don't feel like, designed for your rural driving, you know, on country roads or interstate driving. It's more if you're in that stop and go traffic, so that way you don't have to pay attention as much. You know, still ready to take over, but it gives you a chance to, when you're stuck in that traffic for hours, you know, do a little work. I'm intrigued by this, Reggie. I I, got to say, I'm intrigued by it, but at the same point, I think this is one of those things that's going to be more readily adopted by individuals who grow up with automated cars or self-driving cars. I have to believe the first time that I get into one of these vehicles, I'm going to be a little bit tense. I'm going to be a little skeptical of the fact that this vehicle is apparently ready to take over and handle the responsibilities that I've historically handled myself. And to your point, no, you're not just letting it fly on cruise control on a highway at 80 miles per hour but still i don't know how shall we say comfortable i'd be checking emails while allowing the car to do its thing as you said you have to be ready to jump in at any point i don't know that i'd be all that ready if i'm 
staring at my phone trying to figure out what's going on at work. Yeah, I think it'll probably give you some alerts or something if something's going to happen so you can drop your phone and grab the wheel. Uh, and I know some people are wondering, like, doesn't Tesla already do this? Well, BMW and Mercedes-Benz are going to be the first to push this level three automation for commercial use. Uh, Tesla right now only offers the level two automation. So that's why when you hear sometimes like the accidents happening, it's because the level two isn't ready for the driverless. It, it still requires your hands on the wheel, you to be paying attention. The level three is here where you can back off a little bit and check those emails. But like you, I feel like I'd be a little paranoid about it. Well, we're all familiar with the headlines. Quote, Florida man does, well, you fill in the blank. Oftentimes the blank is an absurd activity or crime. Some of them a bit too out there to repeat here. Go ahead and Google to see for yourself, but be careful. You never know what might pop up on your screen. We know the stereotype doesn't apply to every person in the Sunshine State. That said, one Florida man named Pete Melfi decided it was time to have a little fun with the cliche. He's the organizer of the very first Florida Man Games, a competition open to any of the state's residents, though you'll have to apply and be accepted. More on that in a moment. Featuring unusual athletic challenges like beer belly wrestling, weaponized pool noodle mud duels, and the headliner, this is my personal favorite, the evading arrest obstacle course set to feature real police officers who volunteered to participate. <laughs> Speaking to Fox and NPR, Melfi said, quote, I have a great relationship with our St. John's County Sheriff's Office and our Sheriff Rob Hardwick is great. He loves getting involved in community events. And he's a fun guy. So it was a really cool fit that they offered this and that so many people were willing to take us up on this, end quote. The Florida Man Games have been dubbed the most insane athletic showdown on earth, while Melfi also describes it as an opportunity to live the Florida Man life for a day. Outside of local law enforcement, there'll be a tinge of star power, too, with at least two former American gladiators on board to officiate the games, Nitro and Ice, for those familiar with the hit 90s TV show. I know I've spent some time watching a couple of documentaries on American gladiators of late. Uh, as far as who will be a names, contestant... You do. Absolutely, <laughs> as do I. Uh, as far as we'll be a contestant here, Melfi intends to welcome 16 teams of three to five people. They should have no problem filling those slots, as Melfi says the event has already received well over 200 applications for the competition. The first ever Florida Man Games begin February 24th of 2024 in St. Augustine. Reggie, your immediate reaction to the Florida Man Games is what? Well, I have two reactions. First, I like it when people take a stereotype and have fun with it. You know, th th that's always fun. You you have something like that where you have the, the Florida Man and you're, you're having some fun with it. I like that. My other one is for the police games or the, the where the police are chasing you. The evading arrest obstacle course. Yes, that one interests <laughs> me the most. My first question with that is, do the police get to use like tasers and stuff? <laughs> Boy, I hope so. Uh, I really hope so, too. As long as nobody gets hurt. But I but I also want to know, what does this obstacle course look like? What do you have to hide behind? How are how are you actually going about or to go about evading the arrest of these off-duty officers? You know, this could be good TV. 
I might spend a little time tuning in if this were put on television. Yeah, I, I think the evading the rest one is the one that piques my interest the most, <laughs> if, I, if I'm being honest. Are people really addicted to social media? A study finds that a week of reduced social media usage neither increased nor decreased people's desire to get back online. This lack of craving to return to social media platforms suggests that for the most part, social media may not be truly addictive. The study challenges the idea of comparing it to drugs and alcohol and that detoxing process. The research was conducted at Durham University. 51 student volunteers offered to abstain from social media for a week. Now, I'm going to put in a little, I guess, asterisk here that when they said they abstained from social media for a week, most of them failed to entirely avoid social media during the week, but they did significantly reduce their usage. I guess seven of them were able to do it, but the other 44 <laughs> still had a little bit of social media usage. The study recorded subjects' time spent on smartphone apps, and they, they checked their emotional well-being during the week as well. The lab exercises used techniques similar to addiction studies to check to see how addicted they really were, and it revealed that no significant changes in the subject's gravitation towards social media icons or keyboard tapping speed were really affected by the lack of social media usage. The subjects did experience a drop in negative emotions with the reduced social media usage, but their positive emotions also subsided. So it was more of a, a middle ground feeling there. So they weren't quite as angry, they weren't quite as happy, but you know, more middle ground is personally where I like to be anyways. The subject suggests that social media behavior should not be compared to drug or alcohol addiction. Now, there are a few critics out there that argue one week is not long enough to see meaningful changes in well-being. And the sample size of 51 people, kind of insufficient. They should have had a larger sample size. The study does indicate that short-term breaks from social media uh, could be a starting point for those looking to cut back even though the long-term mental health impacts remain uncertain. In fact, some experts are suggesting a, for lack of a better term, a diet as a way to manage their social media, liking it to a food intake or healthy lifestyle. The part that kind of gets me in the story, though, is in the absence of social media, the subjects actually spent more time playing video games and shopping online. So their screen time wasn't down. They just weren't, <laughs> I guess, online uh, using social media as much. Well, it's an interesting study for sure, Reg, but I guess I would fall in line, and this is just a personal opinion, with some of the critics that pointed out, okay, really small sample size, and you admitted that the majority of participants did not actually abstain entirely from utilizing social media. So not to compare it to the drugs and alcohol detoxing that was talked about at the the top of the story, but certainly that wouldn't fly in that type of a setting. You have to completely separate yourself from these things. I, I can only speak for myself. I know that reducing my social media usage certainly leads to less negative feelings, shall we say. And maybe it's just the algorithm and, and I've let it to put things in front of me that upset me more so than than positive things. And perhaps others are simply better at at curating that type of content. But I find myself very upset after spending a half hour on some of these apps. And uh, in that case, I oftentimes just tell myself, nope, we're refraining. We're not going to get involved with it because 
it's not going to do you any good. Especially if you get to the comments section. That's yes. where it gets really bad. Yes, it does. And we don't even know if half of these comments are coming from real people. Let's be honest at times. No, and some of the people are just gaslighting as well. They don't even really believe what they write. They're just trying to get that emotional response from people. 100%. I would like to see this type of study replicated with a significantly larger group of people and perhaps a, a little bit better frame. monitoring of their, yeah. their actual usage, forcing them to steer clear. And, and as you pointed out while bringing us this story, make it a little bit longer than a week, too. How about two, three weeks, maybe even a month, and then see what the ramifications or the consequences, if there are any, would look like. Yeah, I'm kind of curious how many people would sign up for that. I mean, there's people signing up to take those drug tests, but take away social media? I don't know. I don't know if there's enough money for that. Most of us have heard the stories, the legend that is the Loch Ness Monster. For a lot of people, the monster tale is a bit too far-fetched to be believed, but that doesn't apply to everyone. There's a healthy contingent of folks, and by healthy, I mean a lot of people who are convinced the beast exists. So why are we bringing this up today? Well, it was 89 years ago this past Sunday, November 12th to be exact, that Hugh Gray captured the first known photograph of a mysterious creature in Scotland's Loch Ness. That set in motion a global infatuation that would last generations. Loch Ness remains a popular tourist destination with global visitors hoping to photograph the legendary Loch Ness monster. It's even produced numerous investigations over the years, featuring teams of investigators, underwater photographers, and search teams attempting to find conclusive evidence of the beast that has come to be known as Nessie. In fact, the largest search in 50 years took place this past August with around 100 volunteers each day. Unfortunately, no evidence was found. So if you're wondering how many official sightings there have been over the years, quote unquote sightings, Sky News in London reports there have been 1,155 with nine this current year, 2023. Of course, numerous theories have been put forth over that time too, including a prehistoric marine reptile, a swimming circus elephant. Yes, believe it or not, that was actually postulated at one point. And most recently, a giant eel. Whether you believe it or not, it certainly benefits the local economy as Loch Ness draws approximately 2 million tourists annually. Also cited in the Sky News report, Willie Cameron, a.k.a. Mr. Loch Ness, the founder of Loch Ness Marketing, a company that provides services to film and media crews on location at the Loch, estimates this year's tourism has produced in excess of 55 million pounds or 68 million U.S. dollars. Cameron tells Sky News, quote, even if artificial intelligence came out tomorrow with 100 reasons why there is nothing in Loch Ness, trust me, 50% of people would believe that there is something in Loch Ness, end quote. You can read the entirety of the Sky News story by clicking the link in today's show notes. Reggie, are you a believer or are you not a believer in the Loch Ness Monster, among other things? I've always been fascinated with the Loch Ness Monster. I even have my own theory. And, you know, there were a lot of swimming mm. dinosaurs out there. W who's to say that maybe a couple didn't survive? Loch Ness actually has, I believe, uh, big pockets of, I don't know if you want to say caves or whatever it is, that can go out to different waterways. They could have easily gone in and out of there. I, I don't know. 
And to me, it seems very plausible. Reggie, I don't know if that's your own theory. That seems to be a pretty common theory amongst a lot of people. Prehistoric marine reptile, a- a.k.a. a type of dinosaur that swims. Well, I, I've had that theory since a child. So for me, I came up with it because I okay. was a child when I thought of it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, I tend to lump this in with a lot of other, I guess, theories or proposed monsters out there. I, I can't say that I'm a believer. But you know what? It's fun. It's a fun story. Nobody's really getting hurt by believing in the Loch Ness Monster. And if people want to spend their time going out there, doing a little scuba diving, looking around, have at it. Have fun. A little history I didn't know until this week when I happened to see this story. Due to mosquito infestations, the city Havana was relocated to its final location this week in 1519. This was not the first time the city was moved. It had been relocated twice before, within the first four years of establishing Havana, which was founded in 1515 by the Spanish, possibly near the present town of Bartabano on the south coast of the island. Now, the reason why they moved when it says mosquitoes, they picked a poor place to (laughs) raise the town. The climate was poor and the region was swampy, which led to a lot of mosquitoes. And if you've been around a lot of mosquitoes, and I'm sure a lot of you have, you know you don't want to be sticking around too long. The site was abandoned in favor of Havana's present location on the north coast in 1519. That natural deep water port, together with the land protection, made Havana a site that was attractive to a growing number of settlers. In fact, they moved the governor's residence to Havana in 1533, and a royal decree in 1634 recognized its importance, calling it the key to the new world and rampart of the West Indies. In fact, their coat of arms has that inscription. Yeah, that's a fascinating story, Reggie. I don't know how many cities around the world have been moved or have changed locations. Certainly not three times, I wouldn't think. But, you know, Havana is obviously the city that you think of when you think of Cuba. And to have uh, to have moved around like that, that can't be an easy thing when you have infrastructure in place. I know it was a long time ago. We're not necessarily talking about the same types of things that we would be today, but still that's a pretty big move and and all because of mosquitoes at one point too which is pretty wild yeah it's not like you can just say hey let's tear down that house and that people were pretty attached you know like like nowadays back then people were still attached to their houses and where they lived it's yeah it's not an easy move just to say hey we're going down the street here or maybe up north maybe a little more than down the street but you know what i mean that uh we're just going to move to this whole new location and have the city here instead which Obviously, the final destination they went to was a pretty popular choice. Yeah, I mean, you're effectively building an entirely new city, but taking the name with you. So the name Havana's moved around, but really could refer to three different locations, or I guess four different locations uh, throughout the course of history. That's wild. So with all of those Havana's being out there, it could be a little confusing if there's like a Cuba version of National Treasure. Which one do you go to? (laughs) That's a fine question that I shall ponder (laughs) until tomorrow's episode. (laughs) Taking a look at this date in history, in 1968, Led Zeppelin played their first ever show in the north of England when they appeared at the Manchester College of Science and Technology. They were paid a whopping £225 for the gig. Of course, the band was comprised of a lot of great musicians. Robert Plant, Jimmy Page, uh, John Paul Jones was in there, and John Bonham as the drummer. I was going to go through all the accolades here that Led Zeppelin had, but we would be here all day if I did that. What I'm going to focus on is why the band broke up. I don't know. Do you know the story on why the band broke up, Marcus? I don't. 
They broke up after the death of their drummer. It officially happened on December 4th, 1980. So the band was going to start doing a, a new tour. It was scheduled to commence on October 17th, 1980. On September 24th, they picked up the drummer. They were ready to go out. Uh, during the, the journey, Bonham asked to stop for breakfast at one point. He downed four quadruple vodkas with a ham roll. After taking a bite of the ham roll, he looked at his assistant and said, breakfast. He continued to drink heavily after arriving at the studio. The rehearsals were halted later that evening. The band decided to retire to Paige's house. And after midnight, Bonham, who fell asleep, was taken to the bed and placed on a side. At 1.45 the next day, they found him died from asphyxiation. Uh, they ruled it as an accidental death. The autopsy found no other recreational drugs, but supposedly he was on a cocktail to help with his anxiety. So it's unclear if those substances interacted with the alcohol in his system. So after his death, uh, like I said, on December 4th, 1980, the band just released a press statement that stated, we wish it to be known that the loss of our dear friend and the deep sense of undivided harmony felt by ourselves and our manager have led us to decide that we could not continue as we were. The statement was simply signed Led Zeppelin. Although the circumstances, of course, of the band breaking up at that time were unfortunate. I mean, we think of all of the great Led Zeppelin songs out there. Every time I listen to a Led Zeppelin song, I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot about this one. This is another good one. Yeah, undoubtedly one of the timeless bands out there that people from all different generations have come to know and are at least familiar with the name Led Zeppelin. And as you sort of alluded to, Reggie, uh, when a song comes on, a lot of times you may not know immediately that it's a Led Zeppelin song, but it's one that you know that you've heard before. And you can oftentimes go back and, and connect that and say, wow, OK, they really were one of the all time greats. Yeah, and even obviously when the band ended, you still had Robert Plant, Jimmy Page. I mean, there was some great music coming from those two as well. That'll do it for today's edition of Cool Stuff Ride Home. I'm Marcus Paff. He's Reggie Rizzo. As always, we thank you for joining us, and we'll see you on tomorrow's edition of the show. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.